0: Miss Macintosh, my darling, chapter 54, point, part two. Unsure of himself, Mr. Spitzer tentatively walked where his dead brother had walked before him. By only a minute, it still must seem, though innumerable years had passed in the snow falling like an angel's feathers blown upon the wind, he being continually mistaken for him, doubtless because of their appalling physical similarity which caused this prejudice in other people's minds. For the people looking up would act as if they had just seen him a minute or an hour or a year before, passing along the same darker shining street, smiling perhaps, talking to himself as was his habit. And yet this was impossible. They would flatteringly ask him about last week, last month, last year, the last decade, or even two decades, through which he had not lived, perhaps simultaneous decades, perhaps many decades. They would commiserate with him because of the snow pile, because of the snow pallor of his face until as he was mortally embarrassed the red rose of a blush rushed to his cheeks and forehead as if his life had been restored and he would feel as giddy as if he were about to have a sudden stroke to fall into another abyss and his breathing would be difficult rasping as if unaccustomed harp strings were played upon and he would slightly reel from side to side clutching his high silk hat his black cape billing like sails he would go zigzagging he would go zigzag tacking with the changing wind, tacking with the starboard side to the port side, or vice versa, going from larboard to starboard, going with a bulging, going with the bugling wind, which created this loud music around him, deafening to his ears. He would hear the creaking masts, the singing sails, the singing ropes. Doubtless even to himself, he must have seemed like some old ghost schooner which had lost its way, an apparition moving in the moving fog. And the captain was lashed to the masthead, and if he and if he knew where he was, he did not know when he was, not even when he recognized the beacon towers or knew by the flight of birds, that he was not far from sure that he was nearer than he knew. So he would wander back and forth, knocking at many doors, this timid gentleman who, with the anxious air of one wishing only to please, smiled at everyone and annoyed many people by asking for directions at every conceivable intersection, then perhaps going the opposite way from what they had said. He would suddenly turn, going the opposite way. For if they said he should go south, he would deliberately turn north, heading against the wind, and if they said he should go west to find the address or street corner he was looking for, he would deliberately turn east, as if he had misunderstood, though he had understood perfectly. There was a reason for this seeming perversity, of course, the fact that everyone else was equally lost, and so how should he trust the other fellow in this rolling fog of this great city where there were so many human belfries, so many human doorways? He had also irritated many Irish policemen at the intersections. He at once, not recognized his error until it was too late to offer his apologies, addressed his remarks to a wooden policeman in the fog, a traffic robot who could not possibly have known any more than Mr. Spitzer knew. Every time Mr. Spitzer made an error at the intersection, Mr. Spitzer would mark his notebook with a cross, and there were pages and pages of these crosses, probably intelligible only to him. The only thing he should have been able to trust was the grasshopper weather vane in old Foniel Hall, a memorable marketplace, but the grasshopper seemed to hop and hop in a golden circle, turning in all ways the winds blew. So how could he trust it better than himself? Sometimes the lights went out on Griffin's wharf Sometimes even when the great meteors rushed past his head... Beacon and Charles Streets were still crossed, but they crossed in opposite ways from what most people thought. Another fact which might account for Mr. Spitzer's going by opposites, feeling his way through the fog as if each step he took might be the last. Once on Copper's Hill, not far from the table tomb of that old dower Mather who did, had not believed in stained glass windows, or water spouting gargoyles, or any form of religious music or church bells, Mr. Spitzer had heard all the church bells ringing in wild disunion and a ragged news hawk crying, Our great president lies dead. And Mr. Spitzer had timidly asked, in a voice scarcely above a hollow whisper, Which president it was, for he had hoped thus to orientate himself, To find out the time which would count for so many mirages. There had been this answer coming like a foghorn out of the fog. President Wilson Yet President Wilson had not died in office, hence, should he be referred to as ex-president, Mr. Spitzer believed, had died. It was generally believed, of a broken heart caused by the failure of the League of Nations, and had been dead for a number of years, as Mr. Spitzer knew, rapidly calculating, feeling that, as he was always reminded in so many ways, he was the victim of some great joke, which, along with suns and moons and stars and traffic whistles, had been perpetrated personally on him. For he had survived the President by only a few years, several years at least, having passed since his own demise, there thus remaining a number of years which Mr. Spitzer could not account for, though he could multiply and divide, though he could add and subtract though he could count the years on his numb fingers though he understood binomial equations and so he had stumbled on tapping with his cane his forehead knitting into a frown and his eyes protruding like striped marbles in the fog as he had asked himself how could this have happened to him old Joachim who had sought for heavenly harmonies and golden raptures and clouded hopes for with all his yearning for certainty his had been a greater yearning for uncertainty and how could he have lived unless there was always this cloud before his eyes He had met the fellow who carried the lantern for Paul Revere. The fellow had certainly worn a tri-cornered hat, had walked ahead of Mr. Spitzer, cast a long shadow moving across the winter grass, the paving stones, had told him that the British redcoats were coming, that they had just reached Constitution Wharf, and it was the midnight alarm, time for the stirrup cup. And then he had suddenly turned, swinging his lantern back and forth like a star, and asked, can Mr. Spitzer give him a tip on the horses which were running yesterday at Suffolk Downs? For yesterday in Mr. Spitzer's world, this man had said, was today in this world. And yet Mr. Spitzer, though time was thus ambivalent, did not know the score, his mind being this perpetual oblivion like a drizzle of fine mist. So no wonder Mr. Spitzer was annoyed, for he could not even shuffle the cards of the past or remember the sequence of events, the past seeming as ambiguous as the future, and both unknown, outside his experience, his brother being dead. And it was his brother who had cut the cards. It was not Joachim, not then or now. And yet without his dead brother in the shuffling wind the wind shuffling the cards how could mr spitzer have accounted for his ignorance and how could he have accounted for his knowledge exceeding that of mortal man even his brother upon still another occasion mr spitzer had met a man who had told him that he had started a great rock slide in a grand canyon by playing his flute merely by playing his flute great rocks had hurtled from the sky and several cascades got loose from their pinnings and the course of a river had been changed for there had been these vast reverberations from only a few quavering flute notes amplified to fill the heavens and the earth to move the clouds. And was this not greater musical success than most men had enjoyed? And was this not greater music than if he had played in a Boston symphony to old gentlemen with ear horns, old ladies who, though they nodded their heads, had, heard, had not heard a sound for twenty years? Mr. Spitzer believed so, grudgingly, even being slightly jealous. It seemed only incidental to him that the musician was dead, that the rocks had fallen on him. And the merry-go-round wooden horses had gotten loose in the sea-swept garden where the life-sized wooden chessmen walked. And the great conches roared with the long roar of cities, and the pagodas moved, and there were the infinite piazzas lined by barnacles, cherubim-like drowned faces, looking out over the golden roofs, the drowned mirrors, the renaissance gilted chairs, the Louis Thirteenth, and the Louis Fourteenth, and the Louis XV. And there were the great stone masts grown over with weeds, the great human doorways, the great clams like coffins opening on their hinges, and Mr. Spitzer heard four great rivers like the stars rushing over his head, and he saw the lanterns in the flood and the Duke of Wellington stepped out of the fog, carrying a lady's six-tiered white umbrella, and there were many footmen. There was this blurred landscape of many cities, but what was the old fishback building doing here lancing the clouded sky? And who had built the Steinway building, where yesterday, yesterday there were only the salt flats strewn with cobblestones and brittle stars, sea urchins, heart muscles, shells, horse mussels with long gold-streaming hair, and from whence came these minarets reflected upon the moving waters? Distortions seemed to cause distortions, perhaps because one's principle had not been correct. Mr. Spitzer knew that he could not trust his perceptions to guide him, for there was no reality, and there was nothingness nothingness there were mirrored rooms between him and the mirrored rooms there were dark streets between him and the longer darker streets there was a long night between him and the longer night for all was so much like my mother's wilderness of opium dreams that mr spitzer though a patient accurate man who he believed was endowed with little or no imagination was less and less able to distinguish between what my mother imagined and a great city where he walked through constantly changing streets here in this world where everything which was not was and everything which was was not including mr spitzer with his portfolio his address book and a map of boston which he carried with him as if it would do him some good to consult a map to find a street crossing he believed that with his attitude for in- of inquiry, like something stamped upon his features, he must often be mistaken for a census-taker. But how should he count the centaur as one or two? How should he count the phoenix? How should he count the immortal rose from moment to moment? How should he count the man with a broken personality? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven? The seven of spades dropped out of his coat pocket, and there were suddenly seven avenues, seven doorways, and all were the doorways of illusion. There were so many hallucinations stepping out of the fog, so many siren whistles like the whistling winds, so many beautiful ladies in large white picture hats and billowing white dresses and high-buttoned shoes, smiling and winking, although he knew they were dead, for they were obviously not in this world. So So many fine gentlemen leading black poodle dogs on leashes, headless gentlemen, perhaps amputated only by the blowing fog. Was it any wonder that Mr. Spitzer, this man whose body, wearing its cape of darkness, was his constant problem and chief source of his erroneous experiences? felt like a hallucination himself, like only his shadow painted on the fog moving when he moved, or moving even when he stood still trying to find a star. Sometimes his high silk cat moved when his body stood still, sometimes an entire street moved. The clouds were so thick. Sometimes he would see through an aperture in the clouds, a steepled house he had no memory of having seen before, though he must often have seen it, for he had passed down the same street of mirages so many times looking for some old aunt who, he was afraid, might be an old uncle in Paradiso, if this was Paradiso. Yet it might be Inferno, for Mr. Spitzer's was an escalator psychology, he knew, and he continually went up and down, passing through seas of clouds, though the upper world was under and the underworld was upper, and everything was probably reversed. Trees rooted in the sky, birds flying under the water, and there were streets under the earth. Dead ivory kings were waiting in the fog, and there were many moving castles, there were many invisible elephants many bishops many old maids with purple plumes and chessboard faces where one mo- moved one's man a great many shrouded arabs creeping through the silver dusk a great many flags of the moorish cre- moorish crescent flying from the roofs sometimes it seemed a desert city from whence came so many resurrected ships upon the dreaming flood some dead egyptian sailors were unwinding their winding sheets there was a white ostrich standing under a three-branching post in the whirling fog was probably at the foot of Boylston Street. Mr. Spitzer was once nearly knocked down by a lady cyclist, and just as he recovered, he was nearly knocked down by another lady cyclist. One was black, and one was white. What worried him was that he was afraid he had been standing simultaneously on two street corners. At one point, not far from the statue of Aristides the Just, at another point not far from Exchange Street, he believed for he had tried by principles of celestial navigation to figure out where he had been by geometrical circles and arcs and angles and triangles by the most intricate calculations sometimes feeling his way across the moving cobblestones he could still catch even from a distant world a glimpse of the grasshopper weather vane hopping some sometimes seemed to him or the sentinel indian on the coppola his golden arrow turning toward a golden cloud the distance between himself and these landmarks he had always found was greater than the distance between them and himself And alas though he was in some way supremely rational a man who could look down upon the fluctuations of humanity and see the finite errors the eclipses yet how many adventures happened to this man to whom nothing apparently ever happened as many strange adventures as lost years of his life those he could not account for he would walk along a dark street unsure of himself being stopped at nearly every step not that he seemed affluent but he must have seemed kind and indeed he was very very kind got a cigarette buddy the ragged beggar would ask him time and again, and Mr. Spitzer would never refuse, for he always carried on his person two packs of cigarettes, his own perfumed brand, which he smoked in a long ivory holder and lighted with a butterfly flame, and a pack of little brown Cubans for the dead. To the dead he handed out these cheap cheroots. for other- otherwise, with his limited financial means, he could not have afforded this munificence, would have been even more of a pauper than he was, if he had handed out perfumed cigarettes to the dead. So though it might seem ungenerous, a perfumed cigarette was one of the few luxuries he still allowed himself. He had always smoked a perfumed cigarette, reminding him now of his former life. Perone, a chain-smoker, had always smoked these little brown cherroots, too strong for Mr. Spitzer's taste, which was quite refined. He scarcely ever allowed himself more than one cigarette per diem, the doctor having advised him that his heart was weak. Besides, there were so many of the dead, and the dead were not critical. Probably did not know the difference, Mr. Spitzer believed. Once turning another corner, it must have been his dies, and Faustus, Faustus, Mr. Spitzer passed down a long, dim street of cigar-store Indians, and he could almost have thought he had come in his wanderings to an Indian stockade. But this would not have been so bad if suddenly, when he went to strike a match on a wooden cheek, the Indian had not lilted his tomahawk, and someone had cried out as all the wooden shutters banged, Indian Massacre! It had taken Mr. Spitzer a long time to recover his dignity, and in fact perhaps he never would recover completely from this shock to his already debilitated sensibilities, for it had been, he believed, a major crisis. To many small details, which another man might have ignored, he attributed an overwhelming importance, no doubt because of the ennui, the tedium of his present life. In another misty afternoon, when the drops of the unfailing rain were like pearls suspended between the heavens and the earth, the lovely Indian maiden Pocahontas had spoken to him another time he met a ragged tramp who slept under a railway passing at the edge of the city where the rails rumbled over his head and the wheels turned all night long this fellow had tried to sell him one hundred first preferred shares of the grand union pacific railway gilt edged as mr spitzer could see even in the circle of a dim lantern light that the certificates were authentic stamped with the proper stamps and gold seals signed with the proper signatures and the fellow said he had no use for the stock would give it to him for two bits as he was broke and needed the hard cash I said this railway would be worth would some day be worth trillions that had a brilliant future that had got as far now as Utah, the wild Indian country, and would some day pass beyond beyond, would some day reach the other coast, passing viewless summits for the country was expanding, but Mr. Spitzer, even when he knew the future was a sure thing for the future was already the past, would not buy, would not venture a cent, having no gambler's instinct, and besides what he had he of money now. But though Mr. Spitzer had not bought the railroad, he had given the fellow a civil war civil dollar, silver war civil war silver dollar, which he had just happened to find in his coat pocket. Yet if he had bought then, of course, his caution had not guided him, as he could not help thinking afterward. Indeed, with considerable chagrin, instead of being today a poor man, as so nearly a pauper himself. He would be today a rich man, a millionaire, able to ride his own train, even a multi-millionaire, riding a plush-lined parlor car, no doubt, a veritable Midas with a Midas touch. passant, Mr. Spitzer had lost innumerable opportunities to make fortunes, had passed up innumerable bonanzas, perhaps not because of his obtuseness, so much as his indifference. Indeed, he would have offered at various times various railroads by ragged derelicts who had "'told him that they were floating the stock "'or were selling far under par, "'that which would someday be selling far over par. "'Some railroads, which had already been derailed, and "'others which were of the hypothetical future. "'The old inter-urban, "'which Mr. Spitzer believed was no longer in existence, "'running no more through a vanished landscape, "'the old Hartford Electric and the old Mohawk Owl train, which was lighted by smoky lanterns in the Iroquois Flyer and the Grand Montezuma Railway to the Tomb of Montezuma and the Andean Special and the Great Siberian and the Oriental Express. The poor man had tried to sell him a parlor car which had belonged to a life insurance president, but Mr. Spitzer had refused. A parlor car would have been a convenience, of course. Mr. Spitzer never ride in a sleeping car without reserving two berths, both the upper and the lower. For though he slept in the lower, he was afraid to have somebody sleeping over him. He was afraid that the upper might fall to the lower. A fellow had offered him the Taj Mahal for the price of a one-way ticket to the polo grounds, and assured Mr. Spitzer he was not coming back. Somebody had, o- somebody had offered him a lodestar. Somebody had offered him two lodestars for the price of one. Someone else had tried to sell him a six-tent, a mirror for bringing two most distant stars in direct opposition to each other. A fellow had offered him the customs house and the fisherman's wharf and the green Dag- dragon tavern and several china clippers, all for the price of a new shirt." A fellow had offered him Hall of Brooklyn Bridge for half price, was it, Mr. Spitzer wondered, because Mr. Spitzer was half a man. The other half of the bridge, the fellow had said, dissolved into mist or was not yet built. But Mr. Spitzer would not have known which half of the bridge was his. At one time he could have bought the old red brick terminal for a mere fraction of its present value, probably for the price of a single brick. He could have bought the leaning Chrysler building for a song. A fellow tried to sell him the to Brooklyn Dodgers for the price of a cup of coffee and a hole in the doughnut. There had been various other offers of sellouts at various other times by the big leagues, the old Boston Red Stockings, the had wanted to change owners, and the same with the old Baltimore Orioles and the Robins and the Cincinnati woodpeckers and the St. Louis Browns. He would talk to ragged strangers who slept in doorways, even in beautiful Queen Anne doorways, on silver shadowed streets, shadowed by popular trees blown in the wind, or through old hobo jungles he would go walking alone, looking for lost heirs, for those who had lost their property, since it was his business to restore property, not to steal it, looking for persons who had not claimed forget, forgotten, looking for persons who had not claimed forgotten windfalls or did not know of them, persons who had forgotten their bank accounts or were the owners of forgotten legacies, stocks, bonds, certificates, voting shares, he would go where he believed Peron had gone, searching for him, that one brother he knew he would not find either among the living or the dead. Though so he searched through all the avenues of time, all the avenues of space, for Joachim had gone to the stars, but Perona gone to the dogs, so Mr. Spitzer would descend to the lowest canine regions. He would seek out the rude, crude, bearded men, those who were in flight from the law, or society, or their former associates, or even themselves. Their names were not listed in any city directory. In this great work, for which, though his petty expenses were constant, he received no Pecuniary reward, and sometimes not even a word of gratitude. He achieved a little success, he believed, had been able to effect numerous reconciliations, had located lost sons, lost daughters, reunited brothers and sisters, those who separated from childhood, perhaps even from infancy, were brought together through Mr. Spitzer's offices. He had found an old sweetheart whose Italian lover had supposed she had been dead for thirty years. Such reunions were, of course, merely incidental to Mr. Spitzer's greater work, which was to reunite a man with himself. Mr. Spitzer's tactful inquiries had had their fine results, even their unexpected results. He had found a poor derelict who had not known he was the son of a great circus clown until Mr. Spitzer told him. In fact, this poor fellow had not known he had a father, believing that he had come into the world through a process similar to parthenogenesis, the maiden plus the genesis, without the assistance of the male sperm, perhaps even by splitting from himself, though this poor fellow, bearded like a patriarch, was eighty years old, had once ridden with Napoleon almost to the gates of Moscow. Indeed, he believed that he had died in the snow at the time of the Great Invasion, that he had already breathed his last. He had wept like a babe in Mr. Spitzer's arm. He had died in Mr. Spitzer's arms, though the second death could not have been very real to him, as he had already died once, Mr. Spitzer believed. And he believed that probably the ideal method of getting into this world would be to be the parents of ourselves, to be our father and our mother. There were also those who suffered from the law of primogeniture, those younger sons who, because of the assurance of inheritance to the firstborn only, had not inherited the moated castles, the jewels, the plates, the monogram damask, mask, the horses and the hounds. And there were those who had been cashiered from the army or the navy or both, those poor fellows who had been stripped of their buttons, sometimes because of their unpaid gambling debts. There were those who had been done out of their great properties, they had told Mr. Spitzer, and that was why they wandered over the face of the earth. That was why they went from one port of lost souls to another port of lost souls. A fellow told Mr. Spitzer that the steeple of his house had been pecked away by woodpeckers, and that was why he had left home. There were indeed as many abandoned derelicts as the sands of the sea, the stars of the sky, neither the number did not inc- decrease, Mr. Spitzer believed. Alas, how many poor broken souls he had seen in the darkness of this life. There were many bookkeepers who probably had changed the accounts of the books. In fact, as Mr. Spitzer would say, he had gotten to the place where he would not even trust the recording angel. There were many forgers who had even forged their own names. Of some, of course, Mr. Spitzer had only the most nebulous regulations, would not know them if he saw them again, but they always seemed to recognize him. He had found an old woman who had been in her youth the greatest Lady Macbeth. Though she had left the stage because of a nervous disorder, her conviction that she had killed Banquo and for years had wandered from hobo-camp to hobo-camp dressed as a man. Then one night, protecting her honor, defending herself against a man who believed she was a man, she had killed him, shooting him with a rusted pistol. And she had drifted on, swearing like a drunken sailor, smoking a brown cheroot, and perhaps because of that one man she could not kill, that man who was herself.